Well, we're glad you're here this morning, whether you're regular or one of our visitors, guests. We're thankful you've chosen to join us to worship the Lord this morning. I'm going to lead us in prayer before we open God's Word. If you would bow with me. Holy Father, we come this morning, a collection of genuine Christians and some who are not, but we sit here today. We confess that it's very easy, even if we're sitting in a church service with lots going on, that it's very easy to be distracted. Some of us are distracted today. It's Father, we are distracted by health issues, death, chronic pain, loved ones who are hurting, even by our phones, Instagram, Facebook, the internet, people around us, things that happened this morning, things that are happening today, this weekend, next week, our thoughts can flit and flutter and go all over the place. And so our prayer this morning, my prayer, is that you would help us to hear your voice through the sacred text of Scripture. We desperately need to hear a word from heaven. We thank you for the Scriptures, that they are authoritative, infallible, inspired, inerrant, and communicate truth in verbal, written, propositional language. We ask your Holy Spirit would help us to hear, whether we're a Christian or not, whether we're saved or not. Father, we pray we would hear. And we do pray for those here this morning who are not born again, who are not truly saved, that eyes might be opened, ears might be unclogged, and that you would help us to experience and accept and welcome and obey what is written in the text. We pray this in Jesus' good and mighty name. Amen. I invite you to open your Bible to the passage that I read this morning, Luke chapter 2. This morning we're going to talk about hearing and believing and sharing. Some of us here this morning have heard the gospel. Some of us never really have quite clearly. Many of us here have believed the gospel, but some of us here have not believed the gospel. Some of us here are skeptics, and quite honestly, we're not sure about all of this. And then we're also going to talk about sharing the gospel. I want to begin with a true story, one that I've enjoyed revisiting several times over the years, a compelling story. It is about a young student that came over from China in 1920, John Sung, S-U-N-G, came to the U.S. from Fujian province in China. He was a pastor's son over there. He was a Methodist pastor's son. And he came over here to uh, pursue graduate studies and eventually uh, received a PhD in chemistry from Ohio State back in the early 20s. And although his father was a believing Methodist pastor back in China at that time, John Sung himself grew increasingly skeptical, especially through his graduate studies. And by the time he graduated with his doctorate, he was pretty much an agnostic as far as the belief in God and the gospel and all that. And then, strangely, on the recommendation of some friends, he decided to enroll at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, which is one of the most radical liberal seminaries imaginable, still is. And over the next couple of years studying there, 
his faith completely evaporated, blew it up. His favorite professor, by the way, was Harry Emerson Fosdick, the great, uh, I say great, he was famous, well-known preacher in New York City at Riverside Church, who also taught adjunct over at the seminary, very prominent liberal. But this moved Sung even further, theologically left, and eventually even into Buddhist mysticism. All of that changed one night in February 1927 after hearing a series of evangelistic meetings. The evangelist was very young, under 20 years old, but he kept preaching the gospel, and John Sung was penetrated with the gospel, and the gospel he had learned from his parents rang true, and he repented and trusted Christ, and he talks about the joy that just overwhelmed him, and not only that, suddenly he had this intense passion to share the gospel with anyone he met. In fact, he went kind of so ballistic and nutso on evangelism that seminary authorities actually had him committed. And uh, he ended up in a mental institution for six months. And he says while he was there, he read his Bible, about, the entire Bible, about three or four times in just six months. After being discharged from the, he ended up going back to China, 1927, he sailed back to Shanghai. He talks about how he was just grieved and so burdened to share the gospel with anybody he met. He eventually was appointed by the Methodist Church in Fujian Province as a Methodist preacher itinerant. So he was, it was kind of a special class of, of, of preacher. But he became, um, he was appointed, it's called evangelist at large for the Methodist Church, basically. And he began to preach in itinerant. By his own estimate, from 1932 to 1934, he said he preached about 1,200 sermons and traveled about 54,000 miles to over 400,000 people. By the time he died, he died at only 42 from tuberculosis. He uh, had been used by God significantly throughout East and Southeast Asia. Several years later, a uh, colleague of his, William Schubert, wrote a biography. You can still buy it. I remember John Sung. Schubert himself was a veteran missionary in China and had worked closely with Sung as he got back to China. And he estimates that from investigating his life and knowing him and then investigating the sources around him, that Sung's preaching may have led to as many as 100,000 genuine conversions to Christ. And he is still remembered today, Sung is, as one of the great evangelists of the 20th century. That's a great lead into this morning to what we're going to read about shepherds. Now, he was a PhD in chemistry, the, the shepherds are kind of at the other end of the social scale. Nonetheless, we're at the, uh, in, at the end of a three-part series called Christmas Choices, and we're going to see how the announcement of Jesus' birth to a group of shepherds changed their lives and turned them into these kind of crazy uh, gun-ho evangelists. And they not only heard the gospel, they believed it, and then they began to announce it. So the section opens this morning. I'm going to begin, our text really begins in verse 8. And so I'm going to start at verse 8, and it starts with what the shepherds heard. I'm going to read verses 8 through 14. I chose to start this morning with a scripture reading in verse 1 to give us the, the fuller context. I'm going to pick up at verse 8, and it begins with what they heard. And this is, this is very key. So starting in verse 8 down to verse 14. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, and there's fields all around Bethlehem, watching over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were justly, they were terrified. The angel said to them, 
This is one of the most common greetings, by the way, from angels when they appear to people and they uh, are terrified. The angel said, do not be afraid. I bring you good good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. Jesus wasn't born in a manger. He was laid in a manger. Manger is a food trough for animals. Suddenly a great company of a heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. It is fascinating that of the very first people that the angel is recorded to announce this to were not priests, they were not scribes, they were not religious leaders, they were not politicians or academics or business people or royalty, they were shepherds. I don't know if you've ever seen shepherds at work, even today shepherds uh, culturally are not at the high end of the scale. Uh, Scholars debate a bit about the cultural status of shepherds in the first century. Here's what we know a little bit. Aristotle, in his comments about shepherds, even back in 300 BC, uh, along with other Greek writers, used very derogatory terms about shepherds. The Mishnah, which is the oral traditions of the rabbis, uh, speaks of shepherds as a a despised class. It actually, at one point, classifies them along with thieves. (laughs) The Talmud, which is an authoritative written tradition of the rabbis also speaks of them in very negative terms. Let me show you a couple photographs just to give you some context where we're at. First one is where Bethlehem is. That is Israel. Obviously with the current war going on right now, most of us are quite familiar with the geography of Israel, but he would have been born just outside of what is today the West Bank in a very little village. And there is the shepherd's fields, which is the traditional site where the angel was announced. So if you go to the next slide, this last May, Becky and I were leading a teaching tour over there. And this is actually, I just grabbed it this week because I thought we had a photo of the group, or part of our group there. So I am teaching there with the shepherds, the traditional shepherd's field right behind me. There. The next photo will actually show you the traditional site called, it's actually today called the shepherd's field. It's probably pretty accurate. And then the last photo here is of the church of the nativity, which is built, was built in about the fourth century, the original one. And this is built over the site of where Jesus was born. The tradition goes back to the third or fourth century. It's probably pretty accurate. It's probably very close to where he was actually born. Churches in Israel are traditionally built over the site of where a miracle occurred. And that's probably pretty accurate. So that gives you a feel for the topography and the geography of the place. The point is, this really happened. Unlike the Bhagavad Gita or the Book of Mormon or the Quran or something, Bible always wants to anchor things in history and say, this happened, here's, what, you know, here's, here's who the secular ruler was, here's who the provincial ruler was. Uh, it gives you even things like local flora and fauna or currency. It lets you know, this is real. This really happened in space-time history. And nonetheless, this is exactly what took place. Now notice the angels spoke to the shepherds and what the shepherds heard, verse 11. Here is their message. It's a three-part message. We'll break it down. So if you look at verse 11, hope you have a Bible there or a device open in front of you. Here it is, three-part message. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. We're talking about Bethlehem, which was, the word town is a little overinflated for it. It's, <laughs> it was a little tiny village. Today in the town of David, Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, 
and the Lord. So we got a three-part message. Savior's been born. He is Messiah. He is Lord. Break it down. First of all, a Savior is born. This announces, by the way, both bad and good news. I don't know how familiar you are with the gospel, but this announces, first of all, bad news. And then it announces really, really good news. So the bad news is that all human beings, according to this book, I'm only going by what this book says. This is not the gospel according to Jay. This is the gospel according to Luke. The Bible is very clear from Genesis to Revelation that we are born, every human being born, every human being ever conceived is conceived in sin, is a rebel, is a lawbreaker, and hates authority. We hate authority. Even genuine Bible-believing Christians resist and bristles often at authority in life. We don't like it. And the Bible is very clear that we desperately need a Savior. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 59, verse 2, says, Your sins have separated you from God. Not just you over here, but all of us. Your sin, our sin has separated us from God. In other words, we need a Savior. And the great preachers in the Bible, and there's a lot of them, were relentless in calling out people for their sin. Constantly. It got annoying. One king, famously in the Old Testament, said of a prophet, enough, I'm tired of him. All he does is tell me how awful I am and how sinful I am, and he never says anything positive about me. Quit confronting me, he said, with the Holy One of Israel. We don't like that. None of us do. I don't. You don't. And the reminder of the human race is that we are born in sin. Judgment is coming. This was the message of Jeremiah the prophet. This was the message of Amos the preacher or of Jesus or the apostles or even John the Baptist. If you turn over one more chapter to chapter 3, Luke 3, just go over a page. John the Baptist is just about ready to make his entrance on the stage here in Luke's gospel. And in chapter 3, he does step on the stage. And I'm just going to give you an example of his preaching just to show you how common this was. So starting in verse 7, John, this is John the Baptist, said to the crowds coming out to be baptized, baptized by the, word, by the way is, is just a Greek word, it means immersion or submerge. That's why we practice baptism by submerging and we don't sprinkle infants. The word always means the same thing in Greek, submerge, immerse, dip, or bury. He said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, that's not seeker-friendly preaching. <laughs> Call people brutus snakes. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Okay. Produce fruit in keeping with the repentance. Drop down to verse 15. The people were waiting expectantly and all wondering in their hearts if John might be the Messiah. John, again John the Baptist, answered them all. He made it very clear. I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. And the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Notice verse 17. Young people, notice verse 17. This is so countercultural. His winnowing fork. This is John the Baptist speaking of the Lord. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor. And to gather the wheat into his barn. And he will burn up with chaff with unquenchable fire. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable. Speaking of the coming judgment. Now the problem is this. Look at The whole concept of being alienated from God and needing to be reconciled to God, uh, frankly, 
to be honest, strikes a lot of Americans as bizarre and offensive. It strikes a lot of churchgoers as bizarre and offensive. I grew up in a denomination where that really wasn't mentioned a whole lot. It was the gospel of be nice, be nice, gospel of be nice. Well, that's not a gospel. Gospel means good news. That's advice. Gospel is not good advice. It's not like Dr. Phil or Oprah telling you, here's some, you know, good things to do to be a good neighbor. That is not the gospel. The gospel is an announcement. And frankly, the first thing the gospel announces is that we are in trouble. We, we need a savior and we're alienated from God. And most of those, again, unfortunately, most of those that we live around, you know, at school or in our dorm or at work or social media or in our neighborhood aren't walking around stressed out that they're somehow at odds with God. Most of the people around us aren't walking around stressed out that they need to be forgiven or that they're in danger of judgment. But that is what the Bible says. That's what the book says. And so we had to make a choice. Are we going to believe our culture? Are we going to believe our intuition? Or are we going to believe what the book says? The book is very clear. We're sinners who are oblivious to the death sentence hanging over our head from the moment of conception. That's what the book says. In case you have any doubt. Isaiah 59, 2, your sins have separated you from God. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is desperately wicked. Your heart is desperately wicked. So is mine. John 9, we are spiritually blind. Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of God's standard. Romans 6, we're slaves to sin. Romans 8, the unsaved are not able to keep God's law. Doesn't say they don't want to. It says they can't. Ephesians 2 says we're born dead in sin, objects of wrath. And Hebrews 9 says it is appointed unto every single person that once they're dead, there will be judgment. That's the bad news. That's the first thing here. Savior's born. The first thing that announces is bad news. But then it announces good news, which is what? That there's a Savior. And he's been born to reconcile sinners to God. Now, it's not automatic. We'll get back to that in a minute. Doesn't mean every, the Bible doesn't teach universalism that every single person going to heaven. It does say that the opportunity is there and there's a general call that goes out that invites sinners in every generation to repent and believe. And so the good news is a savior has been born, a savior that these sinners, these shepherds and us need to hear about, who came to reconcile sinners to God, offer forgiveness and offer salvation. And the whole point of this is you have to hear the good news first before you can believe it. The, shep the, the Savior announced here to the shepherds, they had to hear it. And the gospel comes through hearing. Hearing. That's the word from the scriptures. In fact, I want to look at one other passage this morning, only one other passage. Romans 10. If you turn over to Romans 10 for just a minute, if you're newer to the Bible, go through the gospels in the book of Acts, you'll come to the book of Romans chapter 10. It's very clear the bad news, we're sinners. The good news, the Savior. But a Savior we have to hear about. Which is why Christianity has always been missions driven. Because people need to hear the gospel if they're going to be saved. And in Romans 10, you have probably the greatest missionary passage in the scriptures. All of us need to be reminded of this. Even missionaries and pastors need to be reminded we're not there just to do good works. We are there to share the gospel with people. They're lost. So Romans 10, I'm just going to read verses 13 to 17. You have one of the greatest passages that talks about the need to hear the gospel. 
Romans 10, verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, notice the progression. Notice the logic here. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? Notice the emphasis on hearing. How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach if they're not sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. No different than today. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, young people, please notice verse 17. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. The message is heard through the word of Christ. You have to hear That is why we send missionaries. You have to hear the gospel. And people around us need to hear. The second part of the message beyond a savior was born is that the savior is a very specific person. He is Messiah. The Israelites had been waiting. The Jews have been waiting a long time for the Messiah. It says here he is Christ. He is the Christ. Again, back to Luke chapter 2, verse 11. Very clear today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the, what? Messiah, Messiah who came to save both Jews and Gentiles, predicted in Isaiah 53, predicted in many places. And the third part to the message, very shocking. He's not just the Savior and he's not just the Messiah. He is the Lord. You say, why why is that so shocking? Well, this is how Jesus himself identified himself. He's not just a man. He is not just a moral teacher. He is not just a prophet. That's where Islam ends, that Jesus is merely a prophet. The Bible goes way beyond that and says he's not only a Messiah and a prophet, which he was, he is the son of God. In fact, he is God the son, second person of the Trinity in human flesh. And that's how Jesus identified himself, by the way. In John chapter 8, he used a phrase that would have been a catchphrase. Everybody in ancient Israel knew what the phrase was. It was borrowed from Exodus 3 when Yahweh spoke from a burning bush and identified himself as I am to Moses. Jesus took that phrase, talking to a group of religious leaders in John 8, and he said, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, he said, I am. Now, it makes for lousy English, (laughs) but everybody knew exactly who it was. Just like today, if you, in music, say, you know, the king, everybody knows, well, that was Elvis, or the gloved one, that was Michael Jackson. I mean, every culture knows certain phrases apply to people. And everyone knew in first century Palestine I am. They had no doubt. And and that's why they picked up stones in John 8 to throw at him because in their eyes, he was clearly committing blasphemy because he was claiming to be Yahweh. There's a fascinating verse, by the way. A lot of people miss it. Paul wrote it in 1 Corinthians 2.8. And it talks about the one that was crucified on the cross was, quote, the Lord of glory. A lot of people just read that and miss the high Christology of that statement. The Lord of glory is actually the one who was crucified on the cross. In other words, God the Son, hear this, in other words, God the Son became the substitute that God the Father demanded. John Stott, the great British Anglican preacher, put it this way. I love this. It's very short. I'll read it twice. This comes from his book, The Cross of Christ. The essence of sin is substituting ourselves for God. The essence of the gospel is God substituting himself for us. Let me read that one more time. 
The essence of sin is substituting ourselves for God. That's a no-brainer. The essence of the gospel is God substituting himself for us. That is the gospel. Lastly, this morning, what did these guys then do? What did the shepherds do once they heard? And they're they did two things, we're told. First, they believed the good news. So, and, and that's not a given. A lot of people hear the good news and don't believe it, don't embrace it. Or they'll say, yeah, well, I, okay, I, yeah, I believe those facts. But when the New Testament talks about belief, the Greek verb, pastu, I believe, it's not just mental assent. It's not even just mental agreement. Remember, the devil has mental agreement with the facts of the gospel. So do demons. They know it better than anybody. Really, when you get to the, the, the group of words around pastuo, I believe, uh, and, and faith, the, the best words in English today would be words like trust, love, committed to. You, you're all in. That's, that's what's being conveyed. And the shepherds here very clearly didn't just hear this and go, oh, that's cool. That's interesting. They were all in. And you get that starting in verse 15. When the angels had left them and gone to heaven, the shepherds said to one another. So now you get shepherd talk here. Let's go to Bethlehem and see the thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Now the photo you saw a little bit earlier, I was standing just outside of Bethlehem right there. So you can see how close they were. And they're right there. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. Lying in the manger. If you go down to verse 20... It's very clear the shepherds believe. The shepherds returned. And what does it say about them? They were yawning and they were bored because they'd just been to a church service. <laughs> no. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. In short, they placed their trust in Jesus as the Messiah, but it was a very specific faith in Jesus, which means... Salvation is a lot more than just believing some things about God. A number of years ago when I was in graduate school, I worked at a large hardware for uh, some extra money. And my immediate boss was a guy that uh, Becky and I eventually had the privilege of leading him and his wife to the Lord and doing a Bible study with him. But when I first met him, and we're yik-yakking as new employees, you know, getting to know each other, I, uh, he asked me what I did. I said, well, I'm in seminary. I'm going to be, oh, yeah, yeah. He said, yeah, I'm a Christian. He's, I said, well, meaning what? Oh, yeah, yeah, I believe in God. And so I started to kind of let him know that that doesn't make you a Christian. I mean, Jews believe in God. Hindus believe in God. Muslims believe in God. That's a generic theism doesn't make you a Christian, a general belief in God. As we talked, it became clear he did not know the God of the Bible. And he did not understand who Jesus was. And he certainly didn't understand the cross. And so as we began to talk about that, he eventually surrendered to Jesus, and so did his wife as Savior. And there, the evidence in them was this newfound hunger, this newfound hunger to know God, to know Christ, to obey, and a hunger for righteousness. In fact, I remember having a conversation with him after he was converted. And he said to me one day in one of the aisles where we were walking around, he said, you know, I, I'm, I'm feeling guilty about things I've never felt guilty about in the past. I said, really? Like what? Like uh, pornography. Like pornography. I mean, suddenly I feel guilty. I said, good. Good. That shows you're likely saved. The Holy Spirit's doing things in you that he doesn't do in an unbeliever. 
So first thing is they believed the gospel and it revolutionized them. And then lastly, what did they do? They shared the gospel. The shepherds not only believed the good news, they became the first evangelists in the history of the world. Verse 17 and 18, when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about this child and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart and the shepherds returned glorifying, praising God for what they had heard in which they were told they went out and blasted this information, which means, friends, that one of the clear signs that someone is born again, has come to know the Savior, is that they are eager to tell other people about the good news. They don't just go to church. They don't just do the religious thing. They are consumed by a new hunger for righteousness. They're not perfect. They're still going to have the same flaws as David Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great British preacher, said, who was a surgeon he, before he became a preacher, he said, conversion doesn't change your personality and your basic temperament. What it does over the years is soften it and mold it to be more like Christ. But you're still uniquely you, so these shepherds are still uniquely them. But as they began to be changed, they had this intense desire to share the gospel. Now, Francis of Assisi, St. Francis of Assisi, a lot of us know the name, 13th century Italian friar, mystic, founder of the Franciscans. He has a famous quote. Lots of people love to quote it. In fact, I was given it on a plaque one time. Nice quote. Preach the gospel always. If necessary, use words. Frankly, that's a lot of nonsense. I mean, it is, there is a value in living the gospel in front of people, but the gospel is always associated with verbal communication. And the Bible commands us to share the gospel with both our lives and our lips. <laughs> That's the key. 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone. Peter's challenging those who know Christ. Always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you about the hope you have. That's verbal. And if you look at Peter's sermons in the book of Acts, they were filled with what? Lots of words. Words, lots of them. And so were the sermons of Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Jesus and Paul. Lots of verbal communication. Ladies and gentlemen, young people and boys and girls, these shepherds knew they had found a savior. They wanted to tell the good news. It was the same response John Sung had after he was converted in February 1927. And the simple truth is that the vast majority of people who come to faith in Christ, not all, but the vast majority, come to faith in Christ because someone they knew that they trusted told them about the gospel. If you know Christ here this morning, if you're saved, ask yourself, where did you first hear about it? Was it a Sunday school teacher, a parent, a pastor, somebody you knew personally? Some people come to faith off the street. That's not, an, I mean, I met, we've met those kind of people. My youngest daughter has a friend who I've shared before. Was, she's from Norway, and she was walking around one day on the streets of Oslo. Her parents were atheists. She knew nothing of the gospel. She just heard somebody preaching, and she got saved. That's not the norm. That's not the norm. Most of us come to faith because someone we know trusted and loved shared the information with us. Now, just to be clear, before I land the plane, what is the gospel? In case you're sitting here this morning like you're hearing the word gospel. It's a Greek word. It means good news. What is it? Let me 
try to be crystal clear about what it's not and what it is, just so we all end with this ringing in our ears. Ready? The gospel is not a self-help moral program. The gospel is not about living your best life now. The gospel is not good advice. The gospel is not about going to church. It's not about being religious. It's not even about being a good person or trying harder. None of that's the gospel. So what is it? The gospel is a Greek word that means good news. It's an announcement. It's in the indicative, not the imperative. Religion is in the imperative mood. What's that? Do. Tells you what to do. The gospel doesn't do that. The gospel tells you what has already been done for the sinner. It's an indicative announcement. And it's an announcement about forgiveness that is available to moral failures like us. We are galactic moral failures. I am. You are. We are. Some of us are saved. Some of us are not. Some are forgiven moral failures. Some not. But that's the, that's the, it is a true story that God invaded history in the person of Jesus to rescue lost sinners. The gospel is a proclamation that Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross satisfied the wrath and judgment of God. And the gospel is an announcement that Jesus is the Savior which leads to a twofold summons as I close. Here's the twofold summons. Ready? One, it announces to the world repent and believe in order to be forgiven and saved. Jesus came, says in Mark 1, preaching, and he had a very specific message repent, means grieve over, turn from your sin. He said, repent and believe the good news. That's how Jesus did evangelism. He went preaching through all the synagogues in Galilee and he preached the same thing over and over. Repent and believe the good news. That's how you get saved. Now, our default setting is law rather than gospel. Meaning what? It means we'd rather have, you would rather have me up here today giving you a list of things to do than a savior that has to be submitted to. That's the difference. Our default setting is law. We would rather have the preacher say, well, here, do these three or four things. You're good. We would rather have a list of things to do than a savior that we have to surrender to. That's the, that's the deal on that. And that's true for all of us. So the first summons is repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the only way to be saved. It is the only way to escape hell. It is the only way not to face God's judgment. And the second summons is that those who do claim to be saved, I know numbers of us here this morning know Christ and we love the Savior and we embrace the gospel. It is this, those who do claim to be saved are called to obedience. Those who are truly saved, how do you know? Well, one of the evidences is a hunger for righteousness, but more than a hunger, a pursuit of righteousness. We want to kill sin in our life and we make headway in that. Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will keep them. True Christians who are not perfect by any means. But one of the signs the Holy Spirit is alive in somebody and they are in union with Christ is that they will have a hunger and a drive to be holy that was different than before they were saved. And a hunger and an eagerness to share the good news about the Savior. So if you are Christian, my question to you is, who's the last person 
you shared the gospel with. And if you have an incredible story, by the way, along that line, we like to put up stories here every so often throughout the year. If you have a story of someone you share the gospel with, we would love to perhaps have you submit that, talk to Pastor Doug or myself, and we would potentially love to plug you in at some point. We love to have stories up front of people who share the gospel or somebody who shared the gospel with you and the difference it made in your life. But that's the story of the shepherds and their choices. And profound they were. Father, I want to thank you for putting the story of the shepherds here as a reminder that the gospel applies to people of all classes, all ethnocentric groups, all socioeconomic groups, all cultural classes of group. Thank you. It doesn't just apply to royalty, intellectuals, to the wealthy and the famous, but even to people that we would say culturally are the lower end of the scale. Father, we thank you. It applies to everybody because we are desperate. We need a Savior. And I pray this morning for those who know Christ, that they would be spurred on in their faith to holiness and to sharing the gospel. And for those who do not know Christ, that today might be the day of salvation. This week might be the week that they cross over this line of saving faith and are born again. We pray this in thanksgiving. Amen.